yes, keep your Bibles right where uh, we just read. We are going to be looking at Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. Last Sunday, we began a kind of a little, you know, we're, we're preaching through studying the book of Ephesians together, but we kind of started a little mini-series inside of the bigger series called Walk. And last Sunday, we began with part one, Walking in God's Love. That was verses one through seven. This morning, we're going to look at part two, Walking in God's Light. Now, we have already read our main text, so let's pray one more time, and then we'll get to work, right? I don't like to waste any time. Let's just get to it. Father, thank you for this time and for this time of study and uh, the Word of God, the Bible, for this time of reflection, conviction, encouragement, whatever it is that the Spirit brings. We want to yield ourselves uh, to you now, God, and listen and, and just humble ourselves and listen. And uh, I pray, Father, that you would send the Spirit in power today, uh, that hearts would be changed, that minds would be changed, lives would be changed, that, uh, that we would be made a little bit more like Christ today, that we would be a little bit more sanctified and made like Him in His character in the way he lived. And so help us to do that today. Help us to be free of distraction, um, of any kind of anger or any of those sorts of things. Sometimes we come in here and we bring some baggage in with us. We always do, as a matter of fact. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, the Spirit would prevail today and that we would pay attention, listen, learn, and grow. Maybe there'd be one or two, three, five, ten in this room who have yet to come to know you in a saving way. And maybe you would work that miracle in their hearts, in their lives, in their minds. And uh, for the rest of us, though, that you would just make us more like Christ today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take a look at verse 8. All right, 8 through 14 is where we're going to be. We're talking about walking in God's light. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice about this verse here is the little phrase, you were. You were. You see it right there? You were darkness. You were. Now, Paul was obviously speaking of past tense, right? You were. We have the past tense there, which means that the Ephesians were something at one time prior to who they are now or who they were at this point when he wrote this. They were something other than who they were at this moment. And what Paul was actually doing is pointing to their, maybe we would say their pre-salvific position or their pre-salvation or pre-Christ position, unbelievers, basically. And so you were, he's pointing to that, who they were before Christ. Um, and who was it that they were before Christ? Now, he's described unbelievers and who the Ephesians were a number of times in, in other sections and stuff. But here he refers to them as darkness, Darkness, which is interesting, right? I, I just you, you were darkness. I, I never really heard anyone say that. I've heard people say you're, you're living in darkness, or you're you know you're you're mystified by darkness, or you know whatever. But I've never heard anyone actually called darkness, and that's what he does here. And and what he was really doing with the phrase "you were" is he was setting up another contrast kind of set of statements. You know, you were, you are, you were, you are. He's done that over and over. In Ephesians, especially in chapter 2 is where we saw a, a lot of that. Um, he, would, he would like identify 
you know, their, their prior condition or position. I call it the negative position before Christ. And then he would point to their positive position that would be in Christ. So you have kind of this contrasting of negative and positive, And we see that very strongly in chapter 2. A couple of examples in verse 1. You were, you were, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's who you were. Okay? That's the negative. Positive in Christ. Uh, verse 5. You have been made alive together with Christ. So you have the negative. You were dead. You have the positive. You're alive. Apart from Christ, you were dead. In Christ, you're alive. Another example here, the negative position before Christ, verse 3, you were by nature children of wrath. God was ticked at you. You were under his wrath, under his condemnation. And then you see the positive, which is in Christ, in verse 8, you have been saved by grace through faith. The wrath has been quenched. His justice has been satisfied. All right? And then again, another example, the negative position before Christ, verse 12, you were at one time separated from Christ. You were at one time separated from Christ. Negative. And then you have the positive in Christ. Verse 13, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Negative, positive. Another one, negative position before Christ. Verse 19, you were strangers and aliens. And he goes on to say you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't a part of the true nation of Israel, the people of God. Right? That's verse 19 of chapter 2. Positive, right? You were Strangers and aliens, positive in Christ, verse 19. Again, at the end of it, you are fellow citizens with the saints. So this is a very common teaching method for Paul using contrast. You were, you are. You were, you are. And in verse 8 of chapter 5, which we just read, here we see it again. We see it again. The negative position before Christ, you were darkness. And then the positive position in Christ, after the fact, after being saved, you are what? Light in the Lord. Positive and negatives. And he used this method quite frequently, and and I think it's a pretty powerful way uh, to encourage and to build up the church to continue to move forward in their new identity. There's nothing wrong with looking back. Now, Now, you don't want to dwell on the past. You don't want to stay in the past, which is what we typically do, right? You know, we, we look back, oh, I did this and I did that, and, and you know, and, and now I'm a Christian, but man, I just can't get past these things that I did, and, and the divorce and, the, and the, you know, the debauchery, whatever it is, the foolish decisions, alienated from my children and these sorts of things. We've done all these things, and we tend to get hung up on those things, and that's not the point once we're in Christ, it's to look back, remember where we were, and to rejoice in who we are. That's, that's, a, that's a huge thing, and it's so encouraging to us, and that's exactly what he's trying to do here. But I think that it's, it's more than that. I think what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to increase their knowledge of Christ and his work. You know, looking back and then looking where you're at, you can see the hand of God, you can see the work of the Holy Spirit, you can see the grace of God being applied, you can see the finished work of Jesus Christ and who he is, the embodiment of who he is, his character, his personality, his love, his mercy, his attributes. You see those things and you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that is the greatest piece of artillery against sin. Let me tell you what doesn't help Christians. is just telling them what to do all the time. 
Well, you're not supposed, because right, Christians are typically known for what we're against, not what we're for. And so the way that we usually preach and deal with people is, well, you're doing this, this, and this, and you shouldn't be doing these things. It's always about don't do this and don't do that and all that. What we ought to be actually doing is looking to Jesus to learn about Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished. And let me tell you, when that knowledge of Jesus Christ begins to increase in the life of a believer, the desire for sin starts to decrease. It actually does work that way. And so that's why we're big on preaching the gospel here and not giving you to-do lists. Preach the gospel. And, and that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, here's who you were, here's who you become in Christ. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ so that, in a sense, the world and the, the, its fleshly allure would begin to die. And that they would begin to move forward in holiness in righteousness, in purity, living for Christ. Now, can they do it in a perfected way in this life? No. But I'm just telling you, when you learn about Jesus and what he's done, you, form, you f- fall more in love with him and less in love with the junk of this world. You do. It happens. This is the way God has designed it and ordained it. And that's what he's trying to do here. He wants their knowledge to increase of Christ so that the desire for the things of this world and the things of the flesh would die out, and that they would begin to move forward in the power of the Spirit and to honor God each day and to live for Him and to have His fullness of joy and all of these things, you know, to, to enjoy all of their spiritual blessings, which are laid out in chapter 1. You just think about it in terms of logic. When believers are ignorant of Christ or of the truth, of the Bible, what do they do? They behave ignorantly. That's just logic. Uh, if, If a scientist doesn't study his craft, he doesn't do a very good job at it, and the rocket doesn't make it to the moon. Just think of it in terms of logic. When when believers grow in their knowledge of Christ, in the knowledge of Christ, and in the knowledge that Scripture gives us and and God gives us through it, man, it changes. When believers are enlightened with the truth and they're growing in their knowledge, they begin to behave righteously instead of ignorantly. And and I think sometimes we really, really discount how important biblical knowledge is and how important doctrine is. Because you have these different veins in the church today. Some of them are running just on pure adrenaline and emotion. There's no substance there. And I don't know about you, but when I get an adrenaline rush, I usually feel like garbage right afterwards. You don't want to base anything on emotionalism or any of that. I'm I'm not saying that that we shouldn't be. We're emotional beings. God is emotional. He's created us in his image. In fact, you can't worship God rightly without emotion. That's what it means when we say spirit. That's with our hearts emotionally. So that's important. But, But, you know, you have to have substance. You have to have scripture. You have to have doctrine. You have to have these things for you to grow and for you to become more and more victorious over sin and the flesh and all these things. It's so necessary. I would say this, that our ability to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which is exactly what we're exhorted to do in the book of Ephesians, our ability to do that is inseparably linked to our understanding of Christ and his work. Now that's a statement to write down. The knowledge, this is how important knowledge is, because our minds must be renewed or we're not getting anywhere. It's not all heart, people. Heart follows mind. 
Mind instructs heart. And what is heart? The center of a person, how they think, their will, all those things. They're all directed by the mind. And this is why knowledge is so important. Salvation begins in the mind, not in the heart. You must comprehend and understand it before it can begin to move into who you are in the central part of your being, your heart. Our ability to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and I would say it's a high calling, it's inseparably linked to our understanding of Christ and his work. Right understanding leads to right living. God's design. Now Paul contrasted who the Ephesians were before Christ with who they became in Christ for this very purpose. To educate them on their new identity and blessings in Christ so that the world, as I said, and its fleshly allure would in a sense pass away to them. Paul prayed for this very thing to happen in chapter 1, verse 17. You know, he gets done describing all of these insanely awesome spiritual blessings that we have, election, sealed in the spirit, all these things that we see in, I think, 5 through 14, and, or 5 through 16, and then he kind of wraps it up, or he begins to wrap up, here's who you are, here's who you are, here's who you are. I want you to know this so badly. He prays to the Father of glory that he might give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Paul's praying that they would know Christ more and in a deeper way exactly what we're talking about. And one of the best ways to do that is to look to who we were and to look to who Christ is and what he's doing and accomplishing in our lives. Are, if you're a Christian today, are you the same person that you were five years ago? Because if you are, you're not a Christian. You, there's no stagnation. There's constant progress, even though it's difficult, even though there's seasons where it seems, you know, kind of difficult and all that. But let's not forget that all of life is school. All of life is cla the classroom for the Lord. He's teaching us things at all times in our failures, in our victories, in all of these things. There's always progress because God is a God of progress. I mean, we're talking about the Holy Spirit here. This is his work in our lives. He's making us more like Christ, even when it doesn't seem like it. Paul prayed, man, hey, this is my strong, in this letter, this is my greatest desire for you, Ephesians, is that you would come to know Christ in a deeper way. Why? That the things of this world would pass away. That you would develop the very mind, it says in Scripture, the very mind of Christ. That you would have your eyes fixed on heaven, not on this world that is fleeting and passing away. That's where he's going here. That's what he wants. That's, what he, that's where he's going. That's why he's contrasting. Now, what is darkness? What does that mean? You are, or you were, actually. Now you are, you were darkness. What, what is this darkness? Well, I, I think that whenever you see darkness, especially in the New Testament, probably in Scripture, period, but when you see it, it's, it's usually a reference to either of two things. Physical darkness nighttime, right? Makes sense. And spiritual darkness. It means either of two things. I don't think there's any variation. It's either that there's no sun blasting in the sky and it's dark, or it's there's no sun in your heart, right? The Spirit of Christ. So it has to do with spiritual darkness. It has to do with physical darkness. In our text, which is he pointing to? He's not pointing to nighttime. He's pointing to spiritual darkness, now, the Scripture provides four basic characteristics on spiritual darkness. I just want to cover them and not spend a lot of time, but just go over them. Four, four things that Scripture says about spiritual darkness. These are its characteristics. Number one, 
Spiritual darkness is the work of Satan. It's his work. It's what he specializes in. He's a tradesman for darkness. He's a journey-level carpenter for darkness, if you will. Satan's primary tasks are to pervert the truth, distort the truth, hide the truth, and keep people in spiritual darkness, which is our natural position. That's his whole goal. He's a purveyor of darkness. He upholds it. It's what he does. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this age, and that's a lower G, not a big G, the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Man, this is the work of Satan we're talking about here, this darkness. It's the work of Satan. He specializes in it. He's a journey-level guy at it. It's what he does. And the scriptures say that unbelievers are basically, they're in darkness, but they are children of Satan, who is the father of lies. That's just a hard thing to swallow right there. That's, that's John eight forty four. So his work is darkness, and, and unbelievers belong to him. He is their father in a spiritual sense. MacArthur wrote something good about this. He said, it is difficult for even Christians to imagine that the law-abiding, decent, and pleasant unbelievers we run into every day are children of Satan, are darkness. Yet every person is either a child of the devil or a child of God. That's the way that it is. There's no in-between. There are no other kinds of spiritual children, he says, although there are obviously, or there obviously are degrees in both kinds as far as lifestyle is concerned. But the unbelieving, well-dressed, sophisticated philanthropist, again, that's someone who does a lot of work for, God, for men and helps people and is a people person all that, he will or she will spend eternity apart from God in the same hell as the demon-serving witch doctor. That's incredible. And that's the reality of it. And that's exactly the way the world is to be viewed. There's children of the devil or there's children of God. And, and children of God are born of God and are like God, not in that they are God, but in that they bear his, some of his attributes and characteristics. They're like Christ, who is God. And children of the devil are the opposite. Now, spiritual darkness, all right? That's what we're talking about. Spiritual darkness is the work of Satan. It's not just the work of Satan, however... Okay, it is more. Number two, spiritual darkness is the domain of Satan. It's his dwelling place. Darkness in verse 8 is a really cool Greek word called skotos. S-K-O-T-O-S. Skotos. Real easy to pronounce. I've got some other ones later I'm really going to screw up. It's skotos in Greek, and it literally means the abode of evil spirits. That's how this word is translated. That's what darkness means here. It is a reference to the abode of evil spirits, the dwelling place of the devil, his domain, which is, of course, shrouded and completely engulfed in spiritual darkness. Satan doesn't just work darkness. It's not just his profession. It is his home, if you will. It is his domain. Now, you must be careful don't make the mistake of think, taking that so far that, you know, that we come to some wrong conclusions. Uh, the fact that his domain is darkness does not mean that he cannot enter places that are lit. 
It does not mean that he can't enter the earth during daytime, if you will, or even heaven for that matter. And we see that in Job 1.6 where he goes before God and wants to basically destroy Job. And we see that and we read that in Matthew 4.3. We, we see him come into the desert and tempt Jesus Christ. He comes right into the atmosphere where Jesus is being tempted for 40 days. And who was tempting him? It was the devil. So he, he enters places of light. In fact, it goes further. He even cloaks himself or masquerades as an angel of what? Light. So, you know, we don't want to get the idea that, okay, because, the, because Satan's domain is darkness, we don't have to contend with him here, or that he's not present and active here where there is light, or that he enters heaven, which is really perplexing to me, because that's the ultimate place. I, I wouldn't let him in there. But he's nothing more than a pawn in God's sovereign scheme of things, if you will. Very challenging. He can come into these places. He can, I mean, do we not see the effects of darkness in this world? Murder, betrayal, corruption, all these things. They're, they're, they're all things that are associated with darkness. We can see the impact of this darkness that he's talking about on creation, or better yet, on this world, or on the lives of people. Can we not? Evidence is all around, and we blame it on, you know, well, it was his upbringing, and he wasn't raised in a good home, and that's why he did it. It's darkness. That's all it is. You know, for the Christian, it's, it's not hand-to-hand combat. It's all spiritual warfare. There is a war playing out right now in front of us. I can tell you there's probably a bunch of angels around this church protecting us right now. It's happening. We can't see it, but we can see its effects. We can see the effects of darkness in our culture, in our world. Great example, ISIS. That's a demonic group that serves darkness. So he can enter darkness, I mean enter light. He can enter atmospheres where it's lit and all these things. He can come and go as he pleases, uh, or at least impact, if you will, in the other areas of creation, he masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Luke 25, 53 says that, or it actually refers to Satan, or his title there is, he's the power of darkness. And what does that mean, he's the power of darkness? It, it means that he's the chief principality. He's like the demon king, in a way, if you will. Now, this, this invisible realm, as I said, is all around us. It's everywhere, and we see its effects. And, and those who try to explain it away just aren't being real. With the jihad and the murder and the corruption and the, it's the sexual immorality, all of the things, they're behind it all. These are all deeds of darkness. So unbelievers are not only children of the devil of Satan, but they are also, in a spiritual way, residents of Satan's domain, this realm of darkness. They are. It's, it's, it's where they reside in a spiritual sense. They're dead in a sense, but they also, that's, that's where their soul is, if you will. They belong to, let's just say they belong to darkness. They are citizens of darkness. Verse 8 takes it even further than just saying they reside in it with the devil. It's their domain with him, in a sense. It takes it further and just straight calls them darkness. That's at a whole other level. Uh, I get the idea there that that's just 
when, when you are called darkness, that means that that is the very essence of who you are in and out and throughout all of who you are. That's just, you're, you're not just residing in this domain, but that's what you're about in all areas of your life. And, and again, we wrestle with this because we see kind-hearted, tender, generous, unbelieving people doing a lot of great things, philanthropy and great bosses and all these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's where they're at. And it's, it's really sad. In fact, the Bible takes it even further. The imagery that it uses in terms of the devil and, and unbelievers is that he's the slave owner and they are his slaves. They're doing his bidding. He's whipping them and having them do his bidding. Actually, he doesn't have to whip them. They, they're totally fine with doing whatever it is that he wants. He doesn't have to force darkened people to do dark deeds. It's what they love is what the scripture says. But he really is like a slave driver or owner, and they are his slaves. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that very thing. He is a slaver. Now, this is why it's so foolish for people to reject the claims of the gospel because they think they will have to give up their freedom and come into forced and unwanted obedience to God. This is exactly what unbelievers think. Well, if I, if I come to Christ, then I've got to give up my freedom if Satan is your slave, master, and you are his slave, do you have freedom? You do not have freedom. You think you have freedom. And I would say that's one of the greatest of all time lies the devil perpetuates. That under his control and in his domain, you actually have freedom to do. And you do, in a sense, because you can do whatever you want. But people reject the claims of the gospel in these things because they, I, don't, I wouldn't want to become anyone's pawn or puppet or slave. You are a slave. You just don't realize it. That's one of his most deceptive lies is convincing people that they're, you know, to come into saving relationship with the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not liberating. This is what the devil says. That's an incarceration. The fact is that unbelievers are totally bound and imprisoned by Satan through sin. They do not have freedom. Their minds, their wills, their hearts, their actions, they're all controlled by this devil. The only freedom that they actually have is to serve their master, to serve their flesh, and ultimately to destroy themselves. It is a form of suicide, at least spiritual. Number three, spiritual darkness brings God's penalty. It brings God's penalty. Paul made this point back in verse 6. He said, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Unbelievers, another term or name, title for them, sons of disobedience. Those who are in darkness, those who are darkness, sons of disobedience. God pours out his wrath on Satan's children the sons of disobedience, who, by their unrighteousness, do far more than just disobey him. They actually suppress the truth. It says in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth. When an unbeliever dies, what happens? He or she immediately receives the penalty due for their darkened beliefs and deeds. Immediately. Punishment comes swiftly. Why is that? And we have a false understanding of this. We think that God is coming back to judge the world. He's already judged the world. It's guilty. This is why he sent his son. Now, is he going to do some judgment in the future? Absolutely. There's a final judgment that's coming. But the world has been judged. Just go over and read John 3, 19. The world stands condemned. 
Which means there's no delay in the punishment for unbelievers, those who are in darkness. When they breathe their last breath, they go right into punishment. And there's varying degrees of it. Because at the great white throne, they receive a resurrection body and they're cast into the lake of fire, which is another form of torment and torture that lasts forever and ever and ever. This is dreadful stuff. Not to be taken lightly, God brings penalty on spiritual darkness. And number four, spiritual darkness leads to the ultimate eternal darkness. The penalty for spiritual darkness is eternal darkness. Those who prefer darkness, those who choose darkness, those who love darkness and hate the light, those who love the deeds of Satan and the domain of Satan, right? Because that's the position of unbelievers. Those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be thrown into outer darkness. This is another level of darkness, if you will, where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12 MacArthur said again, those who reject Christ do so because they are content with darkness. And because they choose darkness rather than light, they will forever have darkness rather than light. Now, I want you to just be real. I want to be so clear with you here because some of us are saying, that's okay, darkness is fun. You need to make no mistake here. The darkness that people choose and prefer today will be nothing like the darkness of eternity. In eternal darkness, you don't get to sin all you want and do whatever you want. You don't get to be your own little G God. You you don't get to engage in all the lusts of the flesh. You don't get to live in darkness the way that you do now. You don't get to reside in darkness the way that you do now in the flesh. In the form of soul or in the form of spirit, it's a whole different thing here. You don't get to fulfill all your fleshly fantasies and all the things that you do. It's a whole different darkness that's coming. According to Scripture, eternal darkness is never, ever, ever characterized by earthly pleasure. Like the darkness that you see today. What is it characterized by? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is weeping? What do, why do people weep? Because they are sad. Why do people gnash their teeth? Because they are in pain. And a lot of people think that, well, you know, I like how it's going now. I like to do my own thing and all of that. And and when, oh, that preacher said that that's just what it's going to be like for eternity. I'm okay with that because I like what I'm doing now. Eh. Completely different kind of darkness here. And it lasts forever and ever ever, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, somebody ought to make a horror film with those things. That, that's just scary to me. That's not like Freddy Krueger. That's comical. Weeping, endless weeping. You know, and the antithesis of that is heaven where all the tears are wiped away. But in hell, endless weeping and remorse over what you've done or over the emotional, whatever it is that you're experiencing, endless, an endless stream of tears. Because of that pain and the gnashing of teeth because of that. I think, it's, I think that weeping has to do with emotional and spiritual sadness. And I think the, the gnashing of teeth has to do with physical, uh, or actually emotional pain has to do with the weeping. Emotional pain, spiritual pain, and the gnashing of teeth has to do with physical pain. Because your physical body is going to be, you're going to receive a physical body at the great white throne and be tormented in flesh. Cancer and all these things that we deal with today are horrible, but they're nothing compared to this. 
And you know what the fact is? Before Christ, this is exactly who the Ephesians were. They were darkness. They were headed. They loved this earthly, spiritual darkness, but they were headed for eternal darkness. That's exactly who they were. That that was where they were going. But because God is rich in mercy, because his his love is, is beyond and so deep and profound, because he's rich in mercy, because he loves us with a great love, it says over in Ephesians 2. The Ephesians became light in the Lord by grace through faith. They passed from darkness to light. That's the message of the gospel. You don't have to stay in the darkness. There is light there. What is light in the Lord? What did Paul mean about this? That's kind of an interesting thing, right? Your light in the Lord. Well, I just think about darkness and light. They're two completely different things. They're two contrasting things, right? They're the opposites, if you will. In fact, darkness is really nothing more than the absence of light. Just as cold is nothing more than the absence of heat. Darkness really doesn't exist on its own in a sense. It's just the absence of light. And the same thing applies to heat. But I think that we need to not minimize darkness because it is very real and around us. We've already established that. Paul is saying is that unbelievers reside in spiritual darkness and believers reside in Christ who is light. Christ is light. John 3.19, it says that light came into the world. What is this light? Or better yet, who is this light? Christ is the light. Later in John 8.12, it says that Christ is what? The light of the world. Back in Matthew 5.14, it says that those who are in Christ, believers, uh, they are also called the light of the world. And I would say, as Christ's ambassadors, light bearers for him. And we have a believer, the Ephesians here, and many of us in this room, we have become partakers of the divine nature, right? That's essentially what salvation does for us. It makes us like Christ in a sense. It's a growing thing. And because we're partakers of the divine nature and because God is pure light and God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we have his divine nature in a sense. We become Christ's light. But before Christ, we were skotos, darkness. But in Christ, we have become phos, P-H-O-S. That's the Greek word for light, phos. We have become light. That is what Paul is saying in verse 8. You were you are skotos. You are false light. Since we are the light in the Lord, is what it says, we should do what? End of verse 8. Walk as children of light. This isn't just a possibility for those of us who are Christians. It's exactly what we can do. It's not something that, that we might be able to do. I mean, literally, it is who we are. And and Paul is exhorting them, reminding them, okay, you were this, you were this. Walk as one who's in the light. And and what's he doing here? Is he telling them something they don't already know? I'm sure that in some sense they understand this to a degree, maybe as just a standard issue believer. But really what he's doing is we have to be reminded. Do we not? After we get saved, it's not like we just walk around in all this righteousness and holiness and all this light. 
We're still prone to this darkness in some sense. We're still drawn to it, at least by the flesh. This is uh, an exhortation to them. Walk as children in light. How do we do this? And really the big theme here is imitating God, right? That's what he started this chapter off with. You imitate God by walking in his love. You imitate God by walking in his light as, a, as his beloved children. How do we walk in God's light? That's a great how-to question. We asked it last week when we were talking about walking in God's love. So the question becomes, did Paul put in this text uh, another pattern for us or something to follow? Are there some instructions here, right? Because I can, the Scripture can tell us all day long to walk as God's children in light, but the Scripture is awesome because it takes it further and tells us how to do this. And so Paul actually ins- includes some instruction here. Walk as children of light. Now, here's how you do it. We see that in verse 9, in that parenthetical statement. It basically describes what it means to walk in God's light or to walk as God's children in light. Now, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 from the NASB because I think it's a stronger, I think it impacts the true meaning of the text here a lot better than the ESV and, you know, and you just, I just want to just put this disclaimer in there as a, as a preacher and as a, a huge fan of the ESV. My job at the end of the day is to not uphold a translation. It's to seek understanding here and to proclaim it to you as clearly as I can. And some translations do a better job than others. And I think the NASB nails this puppy. This is from the NASB, N-A-S-B. Some people are going, what's a NASB? It's just another type of Bible. Verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. There's his parenthetical statement. And then also verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay? There's the instructions. There's how you walk in light. In fact, I think it's more than that. It's not just here's how you do it. I think it's the evidence of if you're doing it is actually what the parenthetical statement points to. Okay? So, So think of it like this. The presence of all goodness and righteousness and truth in our life proves that we are walking in God's light. Okay? The fruit of his light is found in those things, those good, wholesome things. Now, obviously, the inference here is that the absence of all goodness and righteousness and truth proves that we are not walking in God's light, right? There's the inference. Okay? Uh, If you're, if you're, in, engaged in, in all goodness and righteousness and truth, that proves that you're walking in it. If that, those things don't characterize your life, you're not walking in God's light. In fact, I think Paul would take it further and say, you're not a believer at all. You see, this is in some ways, and Paul went in this direction. I didn't go in this direction. Uh, or not Paul. I did go in his direction. I didn't go in MacArthur's direction, which was, this is like a litmus test for true faith. Like, if you bear these characteristics, you're a true Christian. I think that's absolutely the truth. That's not the direction I went in. We're talking about God's light. Now, let's break down each of these things so that we can determine what Paul actually meant. Because all goodness, righteousness, and truth, immediately our minds start saying, okay, well, that means this, that, and the other. Well, let's, let's make sure that we're right about what we're thinking here. And here's where I'm going to screw up some Greek words. Goodness is agathosune. Agathasune. I do everything phonetically. I've got this thing lined out. Agathasune. That's the Greek word here for goodness. And what does it mean? It means positive moral qualities. That's what goodness means. Positive moral qualities or moral 
excellence. That's how it's translated. That's what Paul was saying. The person who exhibits moral excellence or positive moral qualities is the one who's walking in God's light. Now, goodness is also the same thing. The agathosune is also one of the fruits of the Spirit. You see over in Galatians 5, 2-2. Okay, so that's what goodness means here. Agathosune. It means positive moral qualities. It means the man or the woman who is walking in God's light is characterized by good morality. And, and somebody would be thinking, why did he say good morality? Because there's different versions of morality today. If you look up morality in the dictionary, it means one thing. It means this. Positive, good, wholesome, God-honoring sort of qualities, right? But today, we re- re- people are redefining everything. But goodness, that's what it is. Agathosune. It's he or she is concerned about and exhibits moral qualities. Righteousness. Righteousness is dikaiosine. <laughs> dikaiosine, not sune. Dikaiosine. That's a hard one to pronounce. If I showed it to you, you'd be like, don't do it. And that in Greek, righteousness, basically the way that's translated and the meaning here, what Paul is saying, is that it is to do what God requires. It's a little broader than doing what's right. It means obeying God. It means obeying the truth. It means obeying his commands. It means obeying the Ten Commandments. It means being, you know, observing these moral qualities that God has laid out in his word. That's righteousness. Dikaiosine. All right, so you have goodness. That's moral excellence, moral qualities. You have righteousness. That's obeying God's word, God's commands the scripture and then you have truth which immediately we would throw our hand up and go that's the gospel it's not what he's talking about it's not what he's talking about that's what i thought well you know you got to be walking in the gospel and all that you know that makes sense because that's what we always preach it's not what he's talking about truth is aletheia in greek and you know what it means this is cool it's so simple aletheia means to say what really happened. It means to tell the truth. It means honesty. That's all it means. Now, are we going to totally you know, shut down the idea of it meaning the gospel and truth and all that? No, but that's not what he's pointing to here. He's pointing to the person who is walking in God's light is a person who exhibits honesty. You know, when something goes down, they tell it like it is. They don't add 16 dimensions to it, right? Uh, they tell the truth. They're pursuing honesty. That's what it is. So you have goodness, you have righteousness, you have truth. These are all fruits of the light, if you will. And the child of light, he exhibits these things. Or or actually, the Christian, when he exhibits these things, and these are the things that characterize his life, he's living and walking in God's light. The believer who strives for moral excellence, the believer who obeys God's word, the Bible, the scripture, his commands the the believer who tells the truth man he's walking in god's light he's walking as a children of light he child of light he's living or she is living as a child of light now again does he or she do these things perfectly no do they stumble yes do they make mistakes do they do they dip their little 
you know, little tootsie roll, little feet in the, in the pool of darkness at times? Yeah. Yeah, they mess up. Should we just excuse that? No. Our mess-ups, our stumblings are meant to convict us and to make us more like Jesus. So we don't ever want to just start playing that whole, well, I got the grace of God thing. We do have the grace of God. I'm so thankful for that because that covers all of my failings and stumblings. And when I decide to take a little dip in the pool of darkness and act a fool and act on my flesh, grace is there. We're forgiven. We're completely forgiven. But, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is just start saying, well, because what happens is we, we really do just start saying, well, you know, grace, 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 grace. And I'll just keep doing it. Grace, 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 grace. And then grace becomes a license for sin. And that's called antinomianism. That's lawlessness. And that's a heresy. You got to be careful with that. But God knows where we're at. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we, you know, our weaknesses. And he gives us grace. So we're not going to do these things perfectly. We're not going to do them perfectly. And, and the antithesis is, is unbelievers. They despise those in darkness. They despise morality. They despise obedience to God. They reject his existence. They despise honesty. Well, no, I've met many an unbeliever who's pretty honest. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if they're rejecting the truth, they're not being honest about who they are. So they're based, their life is based on dishonesty. Now, and now how do people today, okay, because unbelievers do hate these things. They hate morality. And, and, and I'd say the opposite of that is that the believer loves those things. They're not perfect at them, but they want to please God with their life. Morality is important. How do unbelievers show their hatred for these things today? I'll tell you how they show their hatred for them. They redefine what they mean. And then maybe they dismiss them altogether. A couple of examples. Sexual immorality is now considered the new sexual morality. That's a redefining of morality. Well, what was forbidden before is okay today. And the only way that we're going to get people to buy into this is just redefine what morality means. So people show their hatred not by saying, I hate morality. No one says that. But they display their hatred of it when they redefine what it means. Right? That's how it works. Does that not describe the United States perfectly? Hello. Right? Sexual immorality has become the new sexual morality. Tolerance has become what? The new righteousness? Boy, don't you speak out against that person's lifestyle you're not acting in tolerance, which is essentially the new righteousness. You see how sinners and unbelievers not only deny these things, but they redefine them so that they can uphold them. What do they do? Again, I said it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And part of that suppression of the truth is to redefine the actual terms, to change what they mean. You see, we all think now as Christians that tolerance is a bad thing. It's a good thing, but not today's version of it. Because it has replaced righteousness. So don't think that just, you know, let's just broad brush tolerance. If my wife wasn't a tolerant person, I would be divorced. That can, there can be a godly tolerance. We endure sin. We endure people's mistakes and, and foolishness. But, but just active aggression to God and destructive lifestyle, that's being a willful party to someone's death, to darkness. That's not righteousness. People show their hatred by redefining these 
things that have true meaning and they redefine them so they have different meaning. And I would say this about dishonesty. It has become so common today that nobody bats an eye at it, especially amongst politicians. There's an election coming and probably half this country is going to vote for one of the most dishonest people I've ever seen in my life. And nobody bats an eye or cares. Because dishonesty is not, honesty is not important anymore in our culture. And when I say these things, am I implying that all pol- some politicians, they're right, now they get it all together and they're righteous and they're honest and the left, oh, they don't get, are you kidding me? They're all corrupt. They're all jacked up. You know? Why? Because they're all sinners. Some of them are redeemed. They still mess up. So don't, don't get it. Well, he's just one of those right-winged extremists. I'm not a right-winged extremist. I'm trying to be a godly man, and I'm just telling you. And, and, and there's a matter of fact here that some people in certain political parties get some things right when it comes to morality and righteousness. They just do. It's a fact that others are just blind to it. And so what do we do when it comes to voting? We want to side with our convictions if they're biblical convictions. But anyways, I don't want to get into this whole political thing, but just think about that for a moment. Is honesty important in Congress? It is to some of us, and that's why we're ticked. And we're ticked at both sides. This last congressional election cycle was a sweep for conservatives. A bunch of derelicts that aren't doing their job. That are just, uh, okay. Back to the scripture. I just, it's infuriating, man. It's infuriating that a party I grew up in has just given itself over. And now it's like, okay, I'm voting for Jesus. What does that mean? Come back now. I'm putting his name on the ballot. I don't care. We need him to come back. I don't think I can handle it. I'm going to explode. Breathe. Yeah. Breathe. Telling the truth is no longer important. And I, I don't know about you, it's pretty mind-boggling to me. Not that I always tell the truth. I wrestle with that at times. But just the blatant dishonesty today in our culture is unreal. Look at verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, this statement has to do with proving. That's what Paul's saying here. Those who do try to learn and do what is pleasing to the Lord. They're proving that they're a child of light. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. True believers are very much concerned about the will of God. You know, just in a universal sense and in a very closed off personal sense for their own lives. They want to know what God expects of them because they love him and they want to please him. That's the demeanor. That's the disposition. That's the attitude of the true believer. They don't say God's will is not important. Unbelievers say that. Believers say, I want to know what he expects of me so that I can glorify him, honor him. Maybe I can be a little selfish, have the fullness of joy because that's the only way. The fullness of joy comes through obeying God. That's what it says in John 15. Or 17, Colby knows, I don't. It's in there, I know it's in there. Just read all three chapters and call me. How do true believers pursue the knowledge of God's will? How do they, how do they try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, is what he says. You know what, it's real simple. They read and study the Bible. They pray. God, show me your will. 
Show me what this passage means. Point out these errors, whatever these things are. They, they read the Scripture. They study the Scripture. They meditate on Scripture. They, they pray, and Paul says consistently. They seek godly counsel. You know, hey, hey, uh, 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 Levon, give me some input here about what God would want in this situation. Levon gives them some wisdom. They seek godly counsel. Unbelievers are not interested in pleasing God. They are not interested in reading their Bibles. They're not interested in prayer. They're not interested in seeking godly counsel. They don't care about those things. And, and, and we would say, shame on them. No, we'd say they're lost and they don't know any better in a sense. I mean, how can we have expectations for unbelievers? Well, they don't read his Bible. He's in darkness. He don't care about the Bible. The better question is, why do I have trouble with caring about the Bible as a child of light? There are a lot of Christians that have dusty Bibles. And I'm getting tired of saying, well, you need to grow up and mature. What I would start saying is, are you saved? You don't ever open your Bible? You don't ever go to church? You don't, well, I prayed a prayer. Obviously, it was transformative. This is what we do. We... The child of light tries to learn what is pleasing. There's trying to learn. That's action. That's constantly trying to figure out what God wants and desires and what pleases him. Eleven. Look at this exhortation. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. As children of light, we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. What are the unfruitful works of darkness? I think Paul was pointing to the things he listed before. Chapter 5, verse 3 through 4. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy talk, foolish talk, crude joking, all darkness stuff. Chapter 4, verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, that's yelling. Shut up! That kind of stuff to your spouse or whatever. Slander and all malice. Chapter 4, verses 25, 26, 28, and 29, falsehood, unrighteous anger, thievery, corrupting talk. These are all deeds of darkness. These are all these, these unfruitful works of darkness. That's why he listed these things beforehand. I'd say they all should be categorized under the unfruitful works of darkness. And why are they unfruitful? Because they do not produce or uphold righteousness. And they are, under no circumstances, pleasing to the Lord. As the beloved children of God who are light in the Lord, it is our responsibility to take no part, to take no part, not even to flirt with these things. The unfruitful works of darkness are not what we are to be about. We stumble, we fail at times, I get it, but they're not what we go to all the time. They're not our default mode. And then at the end of verse 11, we get hit with a howitzer round right in the forehead. Not only are we to, uh, is it our responsibility as children of light to avoid and to not partake in these things, it is our responsibility to do what? Expose them. Oh, he's self-righteous. Oh, he's a, he's a holy roller Bible thumping fool. He, he pointed out my sin and uh, you know, that's what we hear when we do it. How do we expose the unfruitful works of darkness? And there is a way, there's ways to do it. I would say we do it either directly or indirectly. Directly means to lovingly point out sin. 
And some of us are surrounded by unbelievers who sin so much, it, we would never get a breath in. You just did this, you just did that, you just... And that's not the way it works. That's just, that, I don't want to hear that. As a believer, I wouldn't want to be standing next to a guy who's telling everyone about all their sins all day long. There's a right way to directly point out sin, and it's called in love. Why? Because we have an expectation for them not to do that? No, they're in darkness. But we want them to know Jesus. We want them to understand the gospel and to believe and to be delivered from this sin and darkness. That's what we want. Our motive needs to be love at all times. I know it's not easy. We don't need to be correctors. We need to be ministers of the gospel. You go to a person and you lovingly correct them. Indirectly has to do with setting a righteous example by not participating in sinful behavior. I think we downplay how powerful that can be. When people around us are doing these things and engaging in all these things and we're the one black sheep in there that's not doing it. Actually, we're the white sheep. And we're not engaging in it. Well, we went out and got hammered and chased women last night. <laughs> Phil, you're an idiot. You went home to your wife. That's a powerful rebuke. When we don't participate in what others are doing around us, that is a form of correction. That is a form of exposure. And I would say it's one of the most powerful ways to do it. It really is. And if you find yourself going along with someone who's telling jokes and, ha, 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 you're doing that, just apologize. Don't explain it away. But you can do it directly by going to a person and saying something. You can do it indirectly by living differently. Both are powerful tools in exposing sin for the purpose of what? Shame, guilt, devastation. You're an idiot? No, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of love. We expose because we love. And you'll know if you're doing it out of love or not because your tone, your attitude and all of that. And I get it. Sometimes you're around people and there's so much, so much sin and stuff going on. You're just like, I've had it! You turn into George Costanza. That's what that sounded like. I've had it! Right? I get it. When we blow it, we apologize. Directly or indirectly. Look at verses 12 through 13. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Paul told the Ephesians that there are things that unbelievers do in secret that are so shameful. Believers are not to speak about them at all. There are some things that happen that just, just don't, don't even talk about them. What did he have in mind here? I don't know and I don't want to know. And if I did know, I wouldn't tell you because I'm not supposed to talk about them. Perfect application. My default mode in the flesh is to tell you. And to go, ha, ha, ha. Now, I'm learning as a minister to watch what I say. There are things that we should just not talk about that are just so shameful and ugly and wicked. What Paul was actually doing here is exhorting the Ephesians to use discernment. Identifying and even discussing sin can have a negative effect on other believers. Right? We can expose believers to things that they might not be familiar with by talking about some of these things in detail or maybe not even in detail but just the mention of them we can lead other believers if we're not careful to stumble and paul says don't do that 
We need to be mindful when it comes to talking about sin. We need to be sensitive to others. And a good rule of thumb is this. Use specifics when correcting a brother or sister in the Lord. Use specifics, and maybe you can use some specifics with unbelievers too, but just understand the expectations differently. But when it's one-on-one or one-on-two or something like that, you can use specifics. Don't cross the line here and go off into all kinds of details and explaining how this sin works and the mechanism and all that. Just you can get a little bit more specific when it's one-on-one or whatever, right? And I'd say when you're presenting or talking to multiple people or a group, use generalizations, The Bible uses generalizations all the time. It calls all of the forms of sexual sin sexual immorality. Categorical term for a whole bunch of stuff. Last week I crossed the line and talked about what those things are. I don't think I crossed the line because I think in this culture, if you don't tell people what sexual immorality is, they won't know. They'll just say, okay, that just sounds really bad. But you can use discernment and and you can use generalizations or you can use specifics but know who you're speaking to know who you're dealing with use discernment notice how what he just said there follows the exposure verse so what he's talking about is when you go and expose be careful with what you say don't say things the way that they might be exactly playing out in the life of that person because i don't want you to sin or cause others to stumble verse 13 paul wrote Light essentially makes things visible. And this is the goal of godly correction. It is to shed light on sin. It is to make sin visible. Exposing the unfruitful works of darkness is necessary when preaching the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Christ our Savior has done to rescue us from darkness and sin. Leaving those things out, leaving sin out and darkness and those sorts of things when we present the gospel really does produce a false understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do. And how many of you, if you just show me a quick hand, how many of you have heard people present the gospel and never even talk about sin? Well, Christ can rescue you from your joylessness. Christ can give you purpose. Christ can do all these things while never mentioning sin. Let me see your hands because I hear it all the time. Every year christmas time churches put big banners and signs up and you know christ he he came to give you hope and christ he came to give you purpose and you know what those things are great and they're the benefits of christ's work but that's not truly why he came he came to die that you might live because you're dead and you're in darkness so essential to make sure that we that the sin is exposed that the unbeliever would know why he needs a savior because he must be saved from his sin he must be rescued out of darkness and brought into this marvelous light that we sang about earlier christ did not come just to give us hope and purpose he came to die that we might be born again and live hope and purpose and all of the spiritual bennies and the bennies that we enjoy now uh, even these physical things, they all follow the new birth. They all follow into the Christ work and stuff. And so much of today's preaching is devoid of sin. Pastors don't want to talk about it, and I'll tell you, I'm not thrilled about it. But it's totally necessary. We will never, you might want to write this down, we're wrapping it up here. We will never believe in Jesus rightly or in the right Jesus if we do not first understand darkness and sin. And so far, Paul has presented these things, has he not? He's talked about certain sins and darkness. In our last verse, verse 14, Paul turns to evangelism. 
Why did he do this? Didn't he write this letter to believers? Yes, he did. But guess what? There were probably unbelievers in that church too because there were always unbelievers in a church. Almost always. Nearly every church has unbelievers in it. Remember the scripture that says the, the tares come up with the wheat? They grow together in a sense, not spiritually, but they come up together. There you go. Verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is an invitation for those who are in darkness to come into the light and be saved by Christ. It is adapted from Isaiah 60, verse 1. Awake, O sleeper, describes the unbeliever who is asleep in in the darkness of sin and unaware of his lost condition and tragic destiny. Arise from the dead is a summons uh, to repentance, an appeal to turn away from darkness and the dead ways of sin. Christ will shine on you. That's the good news that God has provided a remedy for every sinful person who will come to him through his blessed son, the savior of mankind, the Lord Jesus. Closing. A few questions. Are you darkness or are you light in the Lord? Do you belong to the domain of Satan or to the kingdom of Christ? See, if you claim to be light, are the fruits of light present in your life? Moral excellence, obedience to God, honesty. There's the test. Do you try to learn, a child of light, right? Do you try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord and seek to do those things? Do you take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness? Do you expose them? Are you sensitive to other believers and avoid exposing them to the shameless deeds of, of unbelievers? Are you sensitive to believers and try to avoid saying these things? and Watch what you say, you're discerning. Are you a sleeper? Are you a sleeper who needs to wake up and turn away from darkness and the dead ways of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who shines His light on all who come to Him by grace through faith? Which part of this text has hit you square? For me, it is the fruits of light. I fall short in those areas at times. I have been lulled into believing that moral excellence is really not all that important for believers and what is truly important for believers is grace. I think every believer, there's a potential to push so hard into grace that they kind of lose a sense of how they live or care about it. And as I said, that's called antinomianism. That's a heresy. The believer must be concerned about moral things and his conduct or her conduct. And I have to say sometimes I get loose. Oh, grace, 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 grace. I don't take small sins seriously and I excuse them with grace. Oh, I'm not a fornicator. I'm not an adulterer. I don't do those things. But, you know, I cuss once in a while and say, yeah, it's not as bad as that. It's wrong. It's wrong. Is anyone hearing me in here? Don't be just saying, our pastor's lame. He is. He's a fool. Don't you be thinking it's just me. 
It was hard to write this sermon. Honesty can be challenging at times, right? I think it's really hard for super duper crazy extroverts like me to be honest in all things. I do. I do. I, I just if, When you have a personality like mine and you speak 10,000 words a second, stuff comes out and you're like, ah, oh, come back. And it already hit them and they took it to the bank and they deposited it and then they're going to pull it out in two years and say, look what you did. <laughs> My greatest struggle in the area of honesty is, is when I tell stories, there are things that somehow miraculously enter into the story that never happened. And he fell down and he was hurt and, and that's how it really went down and, and he was on fire. How'd that happen? Who caused him to be on fire? The guy on the corner. Yeah, and then it just starts perpetuating, and you have to start coming up with... You ever notice why I don't tell a whole lot of stories when I preach? <laughs> I don't. I don't want to embellish. I don't want to... I, hey, look, man, I, I dishonor the Lord in a lot of ways, and I, I don't want to do that. I want to work on this stuff. I want to be this child of light. I want to do this. I want to obey. I want to be, have the moral qualities and all these things, you know? And, and the last place I want to be dishonest is in the pulpit. So you know what I do? Stick to the Bible. Because that's the only way. I just hope that this, that this passage has impacted you and that you realize some things about yourself and maybe it's you know, any one of the subjects that we've covered. And I would say that if, you are, if you're a sleeper, wake up. Christ's light will shine on you. Just come to him by by grace through faith and believe in him and put your trust in him and you'll pass from darkness to light. You'll be rescued from the present darkness and from eternal darkness. And, and not just that. It's not just about heaven. I hate it when we reduce salvation down to, well, I get to go to heaven now. It's so much more than that, man. There's joy and purpose and identity and all these wonderful things that come in that we long for that, that life just does not give us and that others can never provide for us. Come to Christ. Come to him. Or maybe it's one of the other things. Confess. Repent. Let's move forward together as a family. And let's struggle together as a family, right? That's what the church is.